Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You can also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode on the zany Disney Plus MCU TV series WandaVision, and we have others in the works about the HBO Max film Judas and the Black Messiah and the Sundance Film Festival of 2021. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tosh Robinson. Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. Due to the pandemic, American movie theaters are in a state of flux right now, with some reopening and some remaining closed. For safety and sanity's sake, we're still sticking to quarantainment, pairing films that you could find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're hitting the open road and finding America. Scott, that's grossly irresponsible. The pandemic is still going on. You you said that yourself like 10 seconds ago. That's a good point. Uh, you know, I don't really want to eat inside a restaurant, and I'm not that comfortable staying at a hotel, and, and I'm surely not going to sleep out under the stars in the middle of winter. I'd also rather not use a public restroom, so I can't go far. Maybe we can do a modified version of hitting the open road and finding America. Uh, I'm just going to say there's no way I'm getting in a car with you guys. Well, what if it's a convertible? We can all mask up and, and the wind will carry all the droplets away. Scott, the temperature in Chicago isn't getting above 20 degrees for the foreseeable future. Okay, so what if we get the convertible, bundle up, and drive as far as we can go without eating and without needing to go to the bathroom? How much of America will we find? Well, there's an olive garden at the Woodfield Mall in Schaumburg that's about 10 minutes away. We could just drive by it. Or we could go visit the Arlington Racecourse. That's more like 20 minutes. Obviously, there aren't any horse races going on. Uh, because the horses can't wear masks? Because it's 20 degrees outside. Well, that, that's a bladder buster of a drive anyway. Maybe the best solution for the time being is just to talk about movies where other people are hitting the road and finding America. Genevieve, can we at least manage that? We can. Director Chloe Zhao's last film, The Rider, used non-actors in beautiful South Dakota locations to tell the fictionalized story of a young rodeo cowboy dealing with a career and identity-threatening injury. Now Zhao has opened up the frame even further with Nomadland, which follows a houseless widow played by Frances McDormand as she lives out of a van and drifts from place to place and job to job in the American West. Hitting the open road is a choice born half out of desperation and half out of curiosity, which calls to mind the yuppie adventures in Albert Brooks's 1985 comedy Lost in America. After getting passed over for a promotion and losing his job, Brooks's advertising executive convinces his wife, played by Julie Haggerty, to leave her own job, liquidate all their assets, and buy a luxury RV, where they can finally live like the freedom-loving characters in Easy Rider. Or at least their version of it. The characters in both films find themselves through plenty of setbacks, but America winds up meaning very different things to them. So this week, we'll touch Indians in Lost in America, but not before one last romantic evening in Las Vegas' tiniest bridal suite. Then we'll admire the space-saving innovations of Frances McDormand's van in No Man Land. Please join us. You're just nervous about tomorrow. 
You'll get the promotion, we'll move into the new house, and we'll be happy. Okay? You should hear your voice. It just fills this room with excitement. This is David and Linda Howard. They're happily married. I want to have sex with you right here. Right now, right here. And they're about to have a day. This is it. They'll remember the rest of their lives. David, you're fired. Fired? Oh, I'm fired! Now, they're going to drop out. We have to touch Indians. We have to see the mountains and the prairies and the whole rest of that song. Set out to find the American dream. Well, the movie you're basing your whole life on Easy Rider, they had no nest egg. They had a giant nest egg. They had all this cocaine. And wind up lost in America. To America, look out. Here we come. <laughs> Get your motor running. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Head out on the highway. Do you have a reservation? Well, I just dropped out of society. I kind of live moment to moment. I really don't do reservation things anymore. Of all the writer-directors who put themselves in front of the camera, no one is harder on himself than Albert Brooks. In his debut feature, Real Life, about a fatally flawed attempt to make movie stars out of an ordinary American family, Brooks plays a filmmaker undone by his own vanity and commercial cravenness. In Modern Romance, he spun dark comedy out of his character's pathological jealousy and romantic obsession. In Mother, his character ransacks his mother's private life in order to understand his own terrible relationships with women. As David Howard in Lost in America, Brooks's character can be oppressively neurotic and hostile to his wife Linda, played by Julie Haggerty, but here his behavior is rooted in a very real dilemma for boomers who have abandoned their youthful idealism for a seat in the professional class. As the film opens, David believes himself to be on the verge of a promotion that will bring the Howards the happiness that has eluded them for a long time, despite enjoying all the trappings of upper-middle-class success. But when his boss at a Los Angeles advertising firm informs him that he didn't get the job and will have to work out of New York, he's apoplectic. Why had he sold out? Now he's seen the future, and it's a bald-headed man from New York. So after losing his job entirely, David comes to Linda with a frantic proposition. What if she quit her job and they hit the road together, just like they imagined when they were younger, just like the characters in Easy Rider? But in Brooks's satirical vision, the Howards are too risk-averse to drop out of society altogether. They buy a fancy RV, complete with a microwave with a browning element, and they have a nest egg of over $100,000 in cash to keep them reasonably close to the lifestyle to which they're accustomed. They even take a detour to the ultimate symbol of capitalist excess, Las Vegas, to renew their wedding vows, and they wind up bribing their way to the junior bridal suite at the Desert Inn, which to David looks like the room where Liberace's children might sleep. It takes Linda blowing all but $800 of their nest egg in the casino for the Howards to get the humbling they probably deserve. In their great American adventure, they don't even get past Arizona. My legs are asleep, says David as he eyes a freeway exit. Let's live here. With typically merciless self-deprecation, Brooks plays up the disconnect between the Howards and the lives of ordinary Americans, from the biker who gives him the finger after a simpatico wave to the local employment officer who laughs off his request for a white-collar job. And yet, Lost in America is also about a generation of hippie idealists who had sold out and now find themselves boxed into Reagan's America, a kind of bourgeois prison where money provides comfort without meaning or fulfillment. The dark joke of Lost in America is that the Howards take away nothing about America, most of which they wind up breezing through with a pedal to the floor. What they learn, much like Brooks's character in Modern Romance, is that they're condemned to the same behaviors and lifestyle that brought them such low-simmering dissatisfaction to begin with. There may have been a time when they could camp under the stars or touch Indians, but that time is long past. 
The Ford Motor Company has town cars to sell, after all. And David's true mission in life is to come up with a clever jingle to New York, New York. It's just that, that, that my wife and I aren't gamblers. That's what I'm saying. That's the distinction. My wife and I represent the few people, and I'll tell you something, there's probably nobody else that's ever going to come and have this happen. So really, probably, we're the only two. We represent the people who have, who have taken the chance, and we made a mistake, and then the Desert Inn corrects it and, and gives it back. There is a warm feeling here. But you don't think everybody then will want their money back? No, 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 no. In the campaign, you make a clear distinction between the bold, who would be my wife and I, and then all the other schmucks who come here to see Wayne Newton. I like Wayne Newton. I said Wayne Newton? What were you talking about? I heard you say, schmuck, see Wayne Newton. I like him. That makes me a schmuck. Okay, so what is your history with Lost America, and how does it play to you in uh, the year 2021? Um, well, I saw it when I was a teenager first, so I was probably too young to get the references and definitely too young to get the mindset. And now I'm sort of chilled to the bone by the fact that I'm <laughs> 10 years older than these characters who are having a midlife crisis. So, uh, but no, I, I, I love this film. It's delightful. And I, I see, uh, you know, I feel like I say this every episode, but it's one of those films where I see something new every time. This was my first time seeing it. Brooks is a bit of a blind spot for me. I've, I've actually like seen his later films, like Mother and the Muse, but like all like his earlier classics are like a blind spot to me. So I was like, I was eager to check this one out, and I definitely sort of appreciated the central joke. It's a very dark joke, but like the premise, you know, I, I definitely kind of connected to that as someone who is, you know, uh, has just bought her first house and is like kind of in the process of settling into a. Uh, you know, somewhat comfortable lifestyle while also, you know, nurturing similar fantasies as I think uh, lots of uh, people of my generation do. Um, I think there's been a resurgence in the sort of, you know, hit the road dream in the last 10 or 15 years, which I think we will get a little bit of in, in Nomadland. So like, I definitely appreciated that there were a lot of jokes I liked. The first couple of Albert Brooks's outbursts, I, I frantic outbursts I enjoyed. And they definitely did start to grate on me uh, after a while. But I could not get over the device by which they lose all their money. And it just it's just such a stretch. And it really, I think, just diminishes the character of Linda right off the bat to have her be the one responsible for blowing all this money and us not seeing it and her doing it in such a way that is kind of alarming, just betting on 22 over and over and over again. And it's like hinted at that this is, you know, sort of a breaking moment for her. And I think there's something interesting there, but the movie just kind of, I think, feel loses track of her in service of letting Albert Brooks do what he does well, but as I said, it kind of became grating on me after a while. I definitely like laughed at this movie throughout, but there was just sort of this big hurdle as it relates to these two central characters and their relationship to the film's premise, I guess. Tasha? This was my first time seeing it too, and that's because I do not seek out Albert Brooks movies because I do not enjoy Albert Brooks movies. <laughs> and this really wasn't an exception. I find that I really like his premises in some way. I mean, the idea of two middle-aged yuppies hucking everything in order to try to be the bikers out of Easy Rider and almost immediately getting dismissed as posers by uh, somebody who looks like an actual Easy Rider, only to find 
comfort and connection with a policeman who also thinks that movie is badass. Like, that's mm-hmm. a really good structure. But the rhythms that he works by just never work for me. It always feels like he lets the joke run too long and he crams it with nervous words in order to just kind of busy it up. Everything always feels very uh, improv and, and loose. The the scene at the hotel where they try to buy their way into the bridal suite is an example of a gag that for me just seems to go on and on and on and on. And I consistently have these these problems with his movies. I don't like him much as an actor. I don't much like his uh, super neurotic, whiny persona and the way he pushes his issues off on everybody else. Just everything about uh, Albert Brooks movies tends to not work for me except the basic premise. And I don't like his ass face, says Tasha <laughs> His face like is fine. I feel like you're accurately describing the contents of an Albert Brooks movie and also kind of describing what I, what works for me, why they work for me. Like the awkwardness, the way things go, just keep going and going and going and play on. I, I, it's definitely, I think you get a rake effect there after a while because I, after a certain point, it goes from awkward to just hilarious for me. But uh, yeah, I, it really seems like he's one of those guys where, where it's a, your mileage may vary situation. Oh uh, yeah, he, for sure. He, he works for me though. Well, here's the thing. I spend a lot of time when I'm watching Albert Brooks movies wondering why I liked Woody Allen movies back in the day and don't care for Albert Brooks because an awful lot of the self-effacing failure humor and like nervy, anxiety-driven, talking too much kind of humor is the same. And just I find him grading in a way where I used to find Woody Allen funny. And maybe it's because I always found Allen's writing more clever and to the point. And just not so much with Brooks. But yeah, I I can't say I laughed much at this movie. I I will say, just in the spirit of always disagreeing with everybody about everything uh, all the time, I actually did kind of like the element of Julie Haggerty's character, Linda, losing all their money. I wish it had been more thematic. I wish it hadn't come completely out of nowhere and then never really been followed up on again in terms of her being like irresponsible and, and desperately driven by risk. I wish it didn't feel just like such an artificial way of getting them to where they were. But I think I I think if it if that didn't happen, if she didn't lose all their money, I think she would just be a dish rag recipient for all of his humor, I guess. The way she is in the opening scene, which again I thought went on forever and, and just was excruciating. So I like the fact that she had a big part in Mm -hmm. becoming as terrible a person as he is, which kind of put them on an even keel. And then the sweetness of their relationship after even after the big blowout, even after she kind of ruins their lives, I thought was to the degree that this movie had a saving grace. The surprise of them almost immediately just kind of like reconciling and having each other's backs, I thought was a, a kind of fun, sweet element. I, mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, Albert Brooks you knew is one this of was my... coming, Scott. Right? You've no, known. We have this discussion every time there's an Albert Brooks movie. Yeah, but you hadn't seen this one. This was like this is one of his. This is one of his. This was one of his. Uh, one of his masterpieces. Oh, like one right. of his. Like, this what? Albert Brooks movie, the one where he's not a neurotic, uh, entitled yeah, just, I, I mean, jerk. Just to step yeah, back for a minute, like, like I, I ultimately, I, I'm on Scott's side. I love this movie, but I feel like I'm a depression kitty on Big Mouth now. It's like, yes, yes, fight. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, it's hard for me conflict. though. Like, I mean, I, you know, I just, I, I don't know what to say other than I think the film is just brilliant in every possible way. Let me kind of start, I guess, with Linda, since that's a specific thing that's been brought up, and maybe some dissatisfaction with her and the way she loses the money. I think the distinction. 
I mean, David and Linda are both going through something, and they're both mm-hmm. dissatisfied, deeply dissatisfied when the film begins, and they both are excited about the possibility of change, but the nature of their dissatisfaction is not the same, and their understanding of what they're doing is not the same. I think there's something about her losing all that money, which is both an expression of her real desire to reject forcefully the life that they had built together before. And also her understanding later, which she talks about in that amazing scene where he talks about the nest egg principle, as we will now call it, where she says, that's not how people drop out of society, right? If you really want to drop out of society, if you really want to live this way, you can't do it with money, you know? And so this is almost a passive, almost like unconscious version of accomplishing that for them. And and I think it gives her character distinction more than just kind of like setting up the rest of the movie. Yeah, I think if you don't get that scene of her commiserating with it's Maggie Roswell, right? Patty, the, the friend she talks to about her her own dissatisfaction. If you don't get that, if it becomes just his crisis, I think it becomes she's a much shallower character. I kind of get what you're saying about the gambling thing being divisive, but it's also to me a very funny scene, and I think funny forgives a lot of uh, uh, any sort of lapses in logic with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's got like, <laughs> right, if you pick up that Kino card, um, and then and then it's got, and of course it leads to the most famous scene in the movie, which is the scene with Brooks and Gary Marshall, the Desert Inn has heart scene, which I, again, think is That's the most funny. famous scene in the movie? <laughs> yeah, the Desert Inn has heart, you don't know, it, like it's a big, it's a very famous scene, that and, the, that and the nest egg scene, but the scene with Gary Marshall is, you know. When Tasha was talking about just scenes that go on way too long past the shtick being like remotely amusing, that's the scene that I thought of first. Mm, uh, what, I mean, I, I, I don't deny sort of the, you know, comedic chemistry going on there and that there are a lot of funny lines. But again, like it just kind of hammers on the same variations on the same joke in a way that, you know, I guess the rake effect didn't take for me there. I understand how it could for another viewer or maybe even me on another viewing. But on this one, that's about the point where I started getting kind of annoyed with David. And I think maybe that is, I think his reaction to Linda, while of course being understandable, is kind of what made me feel that was divisive because it just felt like a reason to give Albert Brooks like multiple scenes back to back of just like blowing his lid in, in, in different ways and not really giving her a voice in that until later. And I, I think it does like make make up for it, you know, down the road in the movie. But like that section of the movie in, in Vegas just kind of really left me cold in the moment. Well, it's also just very squirmy humor. And yeah. that may be part of all of this is, uh, you know, it's difficult and ridiculous to try to explain a joke. But if it comes down to it, can you guys explain the joke? Like to me, watching a haggard, ruffled looking, wild eyed Julie Haggerty betting insistently on 22 over and over, having just lost all the money in the world they have without consulting her husband and him mistakenly thinking he can talk a Vegas casino owner into giving all the money back in exchange for a a billboard campaign. Like most of that is pathetic and uncomfortable and sad rather than hilarious. You guys find it hilarious. Can you, can you in any way articulate to me why? 
I mean, I'm like, no. going to draw no. uh, several flowcharts here, Tasha, that it's just going <laughs> to crack this open, wide open for you, and you'll start laughing and laughing Maybe and laughing. Maybe we should ask Rex Reed yeah. to, so, to explain so I, why I, it's funny. So I cannot... <laughs> that, that, see, now, see, that was funny. That was also excruciating, but... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It, that felt like so much more of a send up to me than the rest of it. But well, but, also I think it was it was a I think a, a shot at, at Rex Reed who 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 complained uh, in either in, I think in print about about Albert Brooks uh, ha- ha- a scene where Albert Brooks had his shirt off in Modern <laughs> Romance and was sort of sort of uh, did not ap- appreciate Albert the Brooks's body and I think that was uh, Brooks's way of kind of uh, you know needling him a little bit. It's, it's kind of um, so, nice to know that men sometimes get that too. Yeah. So let me. So let me get to. Let me go back to the. I'm not. I can't explain why a funny scene is funny. I just can't. I think it's a great scene, and again, very famous. Uh, but I mean, but, this is but, this is what we do. Okay. We're, no, but, but, we're right, talking no, but about me, films. But, but, yes, but I want to break down things that are important about the scene. Two elements that are important about the scene. One is the natural sense of entitlement that somebody like David has. That they can't lose this money. That is their money. You know, it cannot be lost. And there's a way in which there's some sort of club that they're in in which not all that money can be lost. That's kind of undergirds his argument. The other part is that it underscores that connection between or that disconnect, I guess, between the Howards and ordinary people. I mean, that line about all the schmucks who go to see Wayne Newton. You know, they're not like that. They're not like schmucks who like to see Wayne Newton. It's like Gary Marshall's like, I like Wayne Newton. (laughs) <laughs> Does that make me a schmuck? And you get those kinds of exchanges all the time. You know, when, now that they they seem some they they're out there seeing some portion of America that they haven't seen before, and the types of people that they've never encountered before. You know, there's so much comedy in the film that comes from that complete inability to communicate. I mean, from right from the start with the biker who flips them off. I mean, do you laugh at the Winnebago? I mean, it's I, every time I see that, uh, you know, you know, monster heading down the road in this movie, I, I'm, I'm chuckling already. I know I didn't laugh at the existence of Winnebagos. <laughs> uh, if, if anything, it just made me think of the time I, I rented a camper for an event that I was going to out in California and how unfathomably terrifying driving that thing was. So I, I'm, I'm thinking about that the entire time, just how paralyzingly frightening it was to be uh, operating a behemoth like that with its extremely limited sight lines and incredible uh, capacity for mayhem. Uh, well, I did not spend much time... Up. Is it time for feedback? And we'll <laughs> be right back I, I did not spend much time driving that camper thinking about the browning element in the microwave. <laughs> I was fascinated by the browning element in the microwave. I, I, I haven't seen that. Why, what happened to that technology? Yeah, did it ever exist or was that like a movie fantasy and they, yeah. they just thought the technology would come along within a couple of years and that look prescient. See, I think it's I think it's like the electric can opener. It's something that everybody had at a certain point, and then that advancement was something that I don't think people felt they needed anymore. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Guys, guys, not only does it exist, it is still exists. I'm looking at the Emerson 1.2 cubic feet, 1100 <laughs> watt griller microwave <laughs> with a browning elephant, element or elephant. What, 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 about, what about an electric can opener, Keith? Does does it have an electric can for all, opener for all, attached all to the it? Canned, all the canned goods, indeed. And I, uh, yeah, I don't love that bit about uh, you know where, where she makes the grilled cheese sandwich and he just goes on. I, I just I don't know. It, this film is just full of wonderful little details uh, for me, and I like and again the style wise, I like that the scenes are longer. I mean that's some that's been a hallmark of Brooks's style. He does allow things to scenes to develop and take form and and. Um, 
you know, he does interesting things structurally that you don't expect. Um, you know, I mean, the fact that this film, I mean, there's so little happens really in terms of their journey. I mean, they go to Vegas, things go horribly, and then they get they get sidetracked in this small town in Arizona, and then they decide that's not great, and then they go to New York, and that's the end of the movie. I mean, really, it's that's it. I mean, it's 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 the anti road movie in the sense yeah. that like you're not say... getting you're not getting a bunch of stops along the the way. Uh, you don't feel like you're taking this journey with them. It's it's kind of a wonderful play on the road movie in that sense. Yeah, road movies just have multiple stops. You meet colorful characters, and you learn lessons. And they basically—I don't. The only lesson learned here is don't don't liquidate all your money and buy a Winnebago. Um, I guess the bigger lesson, as you point out in your in your in your uh, keynote, is you can't escape the trap you've you've put yourself in. I mean, we do make some stops, and we do meet some colorful characters. I think it's just two. <laughs> you yes. know, we go we go to Vegas and we go to the Hoover Dam, and Skippy. We it's, is it Skippy, the manager yes. at, at right. uh, Derwiner? Der, was it the Derwiner Schnitzel or something? <laughs> Uh, well, and I, and, well, and I was thinking also about the man that Linda briefly hitchhikes with. Animal. And, uh, Isn't he Animal in Revenge of the Nerds? Oh. I, yes, he is. Oh, I and didn't if I'm not know. mistaken, he owns a uh, a bar uh, named Trader Todd's right here in Chicago. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, there's also the motorcycle cop, which uh, that whole thing, mm-hmm. it, it's not really a uh, colorful locale. It's just by the side of the road, but it is a pretty extended uh, conversation. Oh, I got to stop here. His name is not Animal. His name is Ogre. Ogre, dang! Why am I? And uh, uh, they also have—he has an ogre beer. If you want to uh, purchase, okay, you're right. Ogre. Why did I think it was animal? That's so bad. Thank you, Keith. I knew there was. It felt something felt wrong there. (laughs) So yeah, we we do have these, you know, sort of a brief sort of tour through road movie convention, uh, but it's truncated. Uh, there's also the extended encounter with the employment office guy, which mm-hmm. maybe was my favorite part of the movie, not strictly limited to a locale. We can talk about that in a minute. But in terms of uh, character interactions, just this guy who looks at him and laughs at his petty ridiculousness and won't let it go. Like you could argue that that scene also goes on too long and is is just one note. But that guy so clearly mirrored everything that I was feeling about Albert Brooks and his pretension <laughs> and his entitlement that I I did just enjoy him uh, just sitting there coming up with uh, ever more ways to laugh at him and make him feel small. It's kind of like the Gary Marshall scene, but without the forced politeness. Yeah, Gary Marshall was just unbelievably polite to this guy who was basically saying, what you don't understand is that I didn't mean for my wife to lose all our money, so you should just give it back to us. Well, it's customer service, right? And and and, and also, this casino has just made a hundred grand off of the off of the Howards. So, you know, he's got he definitely has to be polite about it. But can you, though, Tasha, admire Albert Brooks for allowing himself or to be as repulsive as you find him in these movies? I mean, this is you know, this is something I opened with. Kind of semi deliberately subtweeting you, Tasha Robinson, when I when I opened my keynote that way, talking about how relentlessly self-deprecating he is and how willing he is to put the worst of himself on screen and, and, and to confront the audience in that way. And I mean, to me, that's exciting. That's challenging and something I ap- appreciate, not the opposite. Is it? I guess I've never hugely uh, bought into the longstanding thing of female actors 
being brave for putting on makeup that makes them look unattractive. And I don't know that I think like male comedians are brave when they present themselves as repulsive. It's just such a common thing, you know? The Seth Rogans of the world, it's just like making themselves look kind of small or dumb or petty or or entitled or rude or whatever is kind of how they confront a lot of the things that, that are going on with them. I don't find it like rare or, or different or exciting. But lovable though. I mean, Seth Rogen is always going to be lovable though, right? If, Not except maybe in the, ex- <laughs> No, but what I'm saying is that, is that ultimately you are, except for that, um, that really great Jody Hill film that he was in, which my brain is not functioning observant, right now. Observant Report. Observant Report, which, uh, you know, other than that film, I mean, every other Seth Rogen movie, it's that, you know, they are, you know, he's, you know, kind of a, a slob or whatever, but ultimately you're going to like him. You like him in every, every movie. That's not what Brooks does. Brooks is hard on himself from start to finish. I think in the, the slobs versus snobs uh, war of the worlds, I'm probably always going to find the snobs funnier. And I guess here he's both a snob and a slob, so it he doesn't necessarily fit into that rubric. But I don't find somebody self-deprecating inherently funny. I either find it pretentious or I feel sorry for them, sometimes both. In this case, probably both. So, Scott, I want to yeah. ask you a question, or, or maybe you and Keith, or maybe everyone, maybe ta- this doesn't bother Tasha either, but I, I'm curious how you reconcile the idea that, you know, he's hard on himself, hard on his character with the end of this movie, <laughs> where yeah. everything kind of is fine. In the end, there's no real fallout from this. No, he's I mean, only, I, he's I, only I, making $70,000. No, <laughs> it's a tragedy. It's I, an I American tragedy. No, I, I, I completely reject the premise. Nothing is fine at the end of the movie. I mean, they're incredibly unsatisfied with their life when the film opens. I mean, and, and I think there was an implication that even if he gets this promotion and they move into a bigger house, uh, that's not going to make them any happier. So surely going back into that world is not a happy ending. But like Linda's whole thing about like change, like how nothing's changed. It's like at the end of the movie, they do have a big change. They're in a new city and she's pregnant, you know? And I think like you could read that as, yes, they're, they're back in the same trap in which they started the movie. Or you could read it as they leveled up and got out of this trap. Um, they just took a really difficult detour along the way. Mm, I don't see I mean, it that way. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think these people are going to make them make each other or themselves happy uh, just because they're on the, the East Coast instead of the West Coast. And they I have don't a kid. Know. I mean, it <laughs> seems to me that the, the whole point is that they're learning to appreciate what they have. You know, they're dissatisfied with the situation because they're bored. I mean, the, the conversation, the excruciating conversation with the Mercedes dealer, um, where he's going oh, through. Oh, man, that's great. Thick. Thick I'm just going to title that's this not, episode. Oh funny. man, that's great. <laughs> well, I will say this. <laughs> this, I, is what, I, this is I how all of our uh, Albert Brooks discussions go. Is I I explain why I don't like something, and Scott says, "Oh, but it's great though." But he, I think he, he all right. He, I'm going to sidestep all that. I think the little bit of softness and a little bit of humanity that in this movie is you do get the sense of these people, for whatever their dissatisfaction with their choices they made and the life they had and the choices they had before them. They actually do love each other. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think oh, yeah. that's, that, that comes through. And to mm-hmm. me, the fact that they love each other makes them lovable even when they're not behaving lovably. 
it certainly makes them a lot more tolerable. If the whole movie was them sniping, it was either him whining at her the way he does in the opening scene or them sniping at each other over whose fault it was and what to do next the way they do at the Hoover Dam. I would not be able to bear this movie. The fact that they're so simpatico at that end moment that where it's just like, we should go to New York and I should eat shit. Yes, exactly. Like the kind of glee that they both have at that moment of like, it's the perfect solution to all of our problems. Shit eating. I kind of like the way that's phrased and I like the way it's executed as well. The fact that it's so abrupt and so almost out of nowhere, I, I thought was comedically pleasing. That was probably the biggest laugh I got out of the film. It worked for me. And the fact that they're back in a city and he's back in advertising, I mean, calling that a problem to me is like saying like John Sullivan at the end of Sullivan's Travels goes back to Hollywood and makes movies. So it's a tragic ending because he wasn't happy at the beginning of the movie. The whole journey is them learning to see that the ideal that they have in their heads of what it would be like to drop out of society isn't what it would actually be like. They wouldn't enjoy it and that their per their life was perfectly fine to begin with. Not just perfectly fine, but to most people in the country, uh, enviable. You know, the, the idea that he was making $100,000 a year and to most people that is a sum that doesn't even make sense in numbers. You know, it's something that he has to be taught over time. And it's a difficult lesson, but he definitely takes it. Uh, I reject the Sullivan's travel and, uh, <laughs> travels analogy. He, he's not he's not unhappy at the beginning of the of Sullivan's travel. He, he wants to do something different. And, and the because he's not unhappy let him, with so what he's doing. Own. No, he's just he's just wants to, he's like a, a studio guy who wants to try to make movies about real people. That's a creative impulse. And this, this movie, they're they're unhappy. Okay, well, this is what we all we really needed was to pair No Man Land with <laughs> No Man Land with Sullivan's Travels. We clearly picked yeah, the wrong no, film because we need to fight is, that one out tough. too. Oh, Tasha, where art thou? right here. I'm going to pivot slightly to something I, I teased a little bit earlier, which is uh, one of the things I did really, really enjoy about this movie was the location shooting. The Hoover Dam stuff, driving through Las Vegas in the 1980s, the end shots of New York City, just like every aspect of that. Our old friend Noel Murray used to talk about how documentaries, even a documentary that isn't very good, if it's a location documentary, it's a great documentary because you get to see how people lived and what things looked like at a certain era. And while I didn't much enjoy a lot of what the characters were doing and a lot of the scripted stuff going on during this movie was, I just loved every shot of like, here's what the world looked like back then. The whole Hoover Dam trip. I found that scene, again, kind of like maybe overlong and dissatisfying, but the background is amazing. The space that they're in and how he uses it as a director is amazing. So I really dug that aspect of this movie. I really wish we had seen the tiny heart-shaped shower because I loved because <laughs> I love because I loved the, the the junior bridal suite like what we, what we saw. But obviously, that's you know a set a constructed set. I think maybe I don't know uh, maybe, maybe that actually existed. I, I did like kind of see to you know follow up on your point, Tasha. I did like seeing this era of Vegas. You know, sort of like pre-Disneyfication of, of of Vegas. I just have like one one little bit of trivia here. Uh, the Cinematographer uh, Eric Saarinen, this is his last credit except for a documentary that came out in 2017. He was Brooks's regular cinematographer um, up to this point, And his other big credit is The Hills Have Eyes, another movie in the American Southwest. So that, that is not a constructive contribution, but it's, I think it's a neat bit of trivia. <laughs> 
real quick, I just want to go back to what we were talking about with David and Linda's marriage, because I, I, I do agree that there is some, you know, actual warmth and humor and, and interest there in the way that they relate to each other. And I think that is maybe where my dissatisfaction with the device of Linda losing all their money comes from, because like, that's a big moment for her. Like, that's a huge thing to do. Like, clearly, like, she is going through something. We, you know, we know she's going through something because, like, we had that earlier conversation between her and her friend. But the way it plays out, I don't think we ever really get a moment of David recognizing that in her. We get him reacting to what's happened, and we get her kind of convincing him to forgive her like like she wins him back with the cop with the easy rider cop thing you know but i i feel like i wanted some sort of recognition from david what drove her to do that you know i i wanted him to see her as a husband seeing a wife going through something and the fact that we don't get anything like that i think is what makes it read like a device to me rather than something a character moment I thought it was kind of odd that when he asks why she didn't tell him that she had a gambling problem, she said she's only gambled like one other time. And then we immediately zip by that and never touch it again. Mm-hmm. Like what what happened the other time? Was it a disaster? How, did she know that uh, the first time she did it, did she have the same sense of bliss? Like what's the story there? There's sort of a tease that there's a story there and then we just ignore it. I'm the I'm the only gambler of the four <laughs> of us here, right? Yes. Okay. I think as we uh, discuss on Uncut Gems, I am like anti-gambling. <laughs> like I, I, it makes me viscerally uncomfortable as a storytelling device. So that could also be a play here too. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think though, if you've done any gambling, you know what the feeling is like when you're on a, a rush, and you know what the feeling is like when that rush is potentially is followed by a losing streak and how how once you're on that losing streak you start to chase your you start to try to you make up for your losses and it's like it's like kind of like you throw good you know good money after bad and and you just get deeper and deeper into the hole and uh and, it, and it's all part of the same manic impulse that you had when things were going well and sometimes that can't stop i mean a lot of a big part of gambling a big part of successful gambling is being able to control yourself, being able to show discipline, being able to uh, manage, you know, stack, manage your stack. And uh, and somebody who's only who hasn't has no experience gambling, but has experiences what we learn is the is the thrill of of winning and being up. You can kind of understand how she could follow that swing all the way down and think that one bet or several bets is going to bring her back, and it doesn't. So I found that, you know, again, it's just, I recognize that mania. And I, again, I kind of found it funny, but uh, again, why your mileage may, may vary as we've we've learned. <laughs> I, I think uh, one of the jokes that plays better the second time you've seen this film is when David gets so excited that she's winning when he when she first arrives at the, at the table. Only to, uh, and if you know what's coming, it's it just that much uh, more, <laughs> much more yeah. uh, galling. I, I gotta say, even on the first first time through, the second I saw her at the table, I knew she'd lost all their money. So yeah. <laughs> the, the I've won thirty five dollars uh thing definitely played as a all right, well that there's there's the first shoe. Let's wait for wait for the other one to drop. 
I guess one thing I just just want to drop in here is that Julie Haggerty is one of those actresses who's like secretly one of the best, and like she's been mm-hmm. good for so long and in such a variety of things. And whenever she turns up in anything, even uh, uh, Noel, uh, the uh, the uh, Disney oh, Plus right. movie, uh, <laughs> it, it makes me happy. Uh, I mean, it was it's so awesome to see her in Marriage Story a couple of years ago, and uh, I don't know, just consistent and kind of consistently. Never gets like wide recognition uh, beyond you know. Hey, it's it's the woman from Airplane, but uh, she is she's fantastic. She's awesome in Airplane too. I watched that recently. Yeah, she is a constant surprise for me. In part because she's got that high pitched, fluttery little voice, and uh, she's just very, very thin and very, very wide eyed, and she comes across as kind of childish and maybe not the sharpest crayon in the box. And that's very much the role that she plays in Airplane, you know, in her most famous role. And so when we start off a movie like this, where, you know, she's <laughs> she's just listening to him uh, ramble on about things that they've already decided and start trying to make absolutely ridiculous decisions about how they should pull back on everything, even though they've already sold their house. I kind of have a, all right, here we go feeling. But from the beginning, uh, she shuts him down. She is not having any of it. And she doesn't come across as particularly controlling or naggy, like even at her most irrational and dismissive of him when he's trying to call her on the carpet for losing all their money. And she's like, yes, shout at me so we can get it over with. Okay, you've shouted at me too much. Now I'm done. Like she is self-possessed at every moment of this movie. And uh, it's I find that kind of refreshing. You know what? On that positive note, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm ready to move forward now that we've left with such positive now vibes. Now that Tasha's Tasha. talked about how much she loves Lost exactly, in America, exactly can... right. Just wait, one, so, one, so what... one, one quick thing. As a thought exercise, I watched I watched the um, the bonus features on the on the Blu-ray. And there is this movie was potentially mm. going to be made with Bill Murray as a star. I was I was actually going to bring that up too because I I thought yeah, that was what does that movie look like. I think it would be good, but I think yeah. it would be very different. Yeah, it'd be great, and then Tasha would hate it because she doesn't like. She's got Bill Murray <laughs> issues too. I do have a Bill Murray issue. Yeah, she she has issues with the people I find find the funniest people in the country. I think I might have liked it better. I mean, obviously, that's a you know no, nothing you can know, but like the parts of the Albert Brooks performance that kind of graded on me after a while, I think are very specific to Albert Brooks's persona. And like, that's fine. That's fine if it does it for you. I'm like what you like. But I think like Bill Murray, he has like a more chill register that he can drop into that Albert Brooks never does. So I feel like there might have been a little more sort of dynamism in the comedy of the of this this character's many freakouts that I may have preferred. But you know, again, that's all just hypothetical. I could easily see him in this role, like far more than our usual uh, shadow casting things that almost happened but didn't. Like I can see Bill Murray in this role so much easier than I could see Johnny Depp in the American Psycho lead role, for instance. (laughs) And I think one of the big differences that we'd get is just Albert Brooks always kind of has that querulousness to him. You know, he's he's kind of whiny and self-questioning as he's stumbling through a lot of this. Only when he gets really angry does he come across crosses at all confident about what he's thinking or feeling. Whereas like Bill Murray never has that questioning tone. He can come across as uh, like if you look at him in Ghostbusters, for instance, he's just got that self-confident 
kind of devil may care attitude of like, I'm right. Even when I'm doing obscenely nasty things to people, like even when I'm being self-serving and destructive and hateful, it's no big deal. Um, I'm very casual about it and I'm very confident about it. And putting that in this role might have made it funnier, but also I think would have made it more toxic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I, I don't think you get the same sort of relationship between David and Linda with Bill Murray in this role. It doesn't work. I'm not sure I could buy a Bill Murray character in a long-term, sweet, loving relationship the, of the kind that David and Linda seem to have. He's too detached. I mean, I think you need somebody who's emotional, a little bit out of control. Somebody like Albert Brooks, the greatest comic mind of, of the of the last 50 years. And All right, so let's, there you go. There you go. Yep, yeah. there we go. Um, so so, I, I so we'll, talk more doing, about, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more about Lost in America uh, next week when we uh, bring in Nomadland, but we'll take a break and come back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We've gotten an avalanche of good feedback since our last episode on Promising Young Woman and American Psycho. But let's start with a voicemail from Bill about the question of what is and isn't real in American Psycho. Greetings, Next Picture Show. This is Bill Shun calling from New York City. I really enjoyed your discussion of American Psycho. Uh, and I wanted to call in with an observation and a question, too. First. Without trying to solve the mystery of the movie and its degree of reality versus fantasy, I wanted to point out a moment about four minutes into American Psycho when Patrick Bateman makes a truly vile threat to a female bartender while her back is turned to him. She doesn't appear to hear him at all, which I think is Mary Heron cluing us in early that not everything we see or hear from Bateman is meant to be taken as literal truth. Um, I think most of what we see in the film is real, but another small moment that stands out as fantasy is when Willem Dafoe's detective character visits Bateman at his office for uh, maybe the second time and whips out a copy of that Huey Lewis CD. I mean, if he wants to rattle his suspect, how would he even know that that's the way to do it? Okay, and my question is, what do we mean exactly when we say that Christian Bale was unknown before American Psycho and that the studio was taking a chance on a nobody? I mean, I first learned Christian Bale's name in 1987 when he was maybe 13 and played the lead role in Empire of the Sun, which I think is one of Spielberg's most criminally underrated movies. Christian Bale appeared in a lot of movies during the 90s after that, and he definitely had fans and admirers. So would it be more accurate to say maybe that he just hadn't had a starring vehicle like this as an adult and hadn't proven himself yet in this really uh, prominent and flashy kind of role? Uh, that's it. Thanks again for a great podcast. So what do we, we got a couple of things to think about here with Bill's voicemail. So let's start with the real versus unreal question. I'm going to go ahead and say that I never took what he says to the bartender uh, the bartender is, is an unreal scene because the bar noise to me overwhelmed, allowed him to say whatever he wanted, knowing that she wouldn't hear him. That was my interpretation of that. But uh, am I wrong? 
I don't think you're wrong, but I think it's another example of how the film gives you something that could be read either way, you know, and that's part of why we're still talking about it, I guess. But it is yeah, like... Jenny is correct. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good moment to bring up in the context of how we think about the, en- the ending. And the, the Huey Lewis CD as well, like... The, that one trips me up a, a little more because, as Bill says, like, how does the detective know, you know, um, but knowing this movie, I feel like there's something in there that that seeds the idea that he could know. I think you're pointing out that these are are perfect example of things that kind of mock you for trying to solve it because they can be read both ways. Yeah, I always took the bar thing to be a combination of bar noise and just the way nobody in that world seems to pay very much attention to anybody else in that world. You know, it's it's part of the circles that he moves in that they all talk in these just like clouds of words about uh, politics and brands, but none of them is really listening and none of them sees each other. You know, his, his whole thing at the end about how he might look like a human being, but there's nothing there, I think is being played out in the bar scene where he's saying some very horrible things, but to most people, he's not there. He's a suit. He's a set of cliches. And the set of cliches says, I'm in mergers and acquisitions. So it doesn't matter that the real him is trying to express himself in a way. As for Willem Dafoe, I always uh, entertained the notion that most of it is real. And Willem Dafoe is just his guilty conscience. Dafoe seems to have just way too much on the ball to be a character in that story. And he does come up with these these weird loopholes. Um, and he's also just a strange sort of person. I, I did always kind of wonder if that element at least was meant to be kind of a, a fantasy of his own conscious, trying to stir itself in, in some way to some sort of human feeling. And what about the question about Bale's level of stardom when uh, American Psycho got made? I think the opinion that Empire of the Sun is one of uh, Steven Spielberg's best movies is right is absolutely correct, one hundred percent. I love that movie, but not necessarily one of his most prominent ones. No. Also, I can remind you of a little film called Newsies, <laughs> which and, uh, a film called Little Women that we. I was going to say, and, and, and Little Little Women. It was Little Women. Yeah, Little Women was before. At the time, though, Newsies was kind of dismissed as a a novelty. Like, I I remember for the longest time feeling that Newsies just had a reputation as a kind of a a ridiculous garbage film. And it took. It took a long time for me to get around to watching it because of its rep. You know, it's it's a lot more fun than its rep of the era would uh, would claim. And then it's become one of those movies that found its audience later on home video, I think, and and became completely rehabilitated. But I will say, when I wrote the script for that one, I was drawing heavily on a lot of different interviews that I I found with Mary Heron. And in all of them, she was very explicit about the fact that the studio people she was working with just did not consider Bale famous enough. And the fact that they were looking at people like Leonardo DiCaprio and Johnny Depp, I think, is is indicative of, of what they considered famous, what would have risen to their standards. It just it wasn't as common back in those days for somebody who had a big role as a, a tween, uh, as a, an early teenager or teen, to get any kind of fame that that would have counted, you know, uh, for an adult role. And, and that was a, a good little ways after Empire of the Sun. I agree he's fantastic in it. It's definitely something that uh, Christian Bale fans should seek out to kind of see where he came from. But 
I just I don't get the impression that it uh, in any way carried on to adult fame. He was better known in uh, Britain than he was in America. And again, this is all coming just directly from Mary Heron interviews. Uh, Velvet Goldmine is another film we have done on the show that predates us as well. Oh, yeah. We've done a uh, lot uh, of yes, Christian I mean, Bale the thing movies. About Bale, I mean, he, I mean, he's always been around and been good. And I think you can see in Empire of the Sun that this, that this is not just some precocious child actor, but somebody who's going to be around for a while. And he's had longevity, but never a level of fame like DiCaprio or Depp. I mean, not not even not even close. Well, and I, th- I think DiCaprio especially is kind of interesting to think about in this context, because Tasha, you're saying that was he was someone that the studio wanted, right? Oh, and, very and, and this, Yeah. And like, you know, he was also a sort of child teen star in the same way that Christian Bale was, but I think like at an even higher level. But I think at this point, he was maybe bankable. He was a bankable star in the, in a way that uh, Bale hadn't proven himself to be as an adult, because this was after Titanic, right? Yeah. A year after Titanic. Uh, yeah. Right? So I'm I'm sure that they were, you know, studios were, were thinking like... Leonardo DiCaprio in everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, I don't think it's necessarily that, you know, Bale was unknown, but he wasn't necessarily a proven quantity as a as a star as an adult yeah this would have been like uh him doing it after titanic would have been like his like spring breakers you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of get, getting out there and going wild so so not, we're going to get into a um, little spoiler territory with this next email from power listener ben about the controversial ending of promising young woman so if you haven't seen promising young woman maybe you'll want to uh, wait for our next episode uh just hit uh, that because, skip 30 uh, seconds forward button a couple times exactly exactly <laughs> what does ben have to say ben writes i'm ambivalent about promising young woman overall and for me its most misguided element lies in its use of police as a plot device during its ending as the sound of sirens approaches rapist alban rose wedding we're led to believe that it represents the fulfillment of cassie's revenge plot and the much-awaited arrival of justice in the story how can that impression be reconciled with the earlier scene between Cassie and Dean Walker, which so poignantly demonstrates how institutional authority routinely fails victims of sexual assault? Furthermore, how can the cinematic treatment of police cars as heroic cavalry be reconciled with the reality of police as not just regularly hostile to women who report sexual assault, but also oftentimes abusers themselves? One may argue that the film leaves room to doubt that the law will actually prosecute Al and his accomplices, perhaps by citing the underwhelming presence of the detective who first investigates Cassie's disappearance, but I can't buy that after the final shots of cops storming Al's wedding, followed by a close-up of Cassie's winking emoticon. Those moments read to me like an undeniable moment of triumph. That tone definitely hinges on a law enforcement system that has, especially over this past year, proven to be more often predatory than heroic. We had an entire essay on this at uh, Polygon that was uh, basically about how a law enforcement being held up as the group that's going to storm in and fix everything doesn't hold water with the rest of the film. And B, the the moral message of this film basically being that sexual assault survivors have to die to get any kind of justice. That, And to some degree that it's worth sacrificing their lives if that's what it takes to get justice. Because this movie kind of expressly says nobody's going to do anything about sexual assault, but murder 
That's where the cops really care. That's where they're going to act uh, definitively and immediately. And it feels like a fantasy to me, in part because the evidence, I, like the a good lawyer is going to come along and say the evidence is circumstantial. You know, she leaves a message saying that she's going to see him. She turns up dead. She could have encountered any kind of misadventure along the way. Like, where's the proof? And whether there's actually going to be any justice in that case, we don't know. The film's ending to me feels like uh, more like an uplift fantasy than like it's meant to be anything in the real world. But that's true for a lot of the film as well, given the the use of pop music and the kind of candy coated uh, visual aesthetic of the whole thing, the the feel of the whole thing. It's meant to be a happy ending where the happy endings very, very often don't happen. I don't disagree with the idea that it's a little tone deaf to have the, the police be the cavalry coming in. But I feel like the justice that is being implied in, in this ending is maybe less about actual like criminal justice and, and him going to jail and more about the publicness of it of him being taken away in, in cuffs, you know, for, for, from his wedding. Um, and there being just like no way to deny that this happened, given that, you know, everything we've been told about how the investigation into the rape played out and was hidden under the rug a, a little bit, you know, it happened behind closed doors. And there. so I, I feel like Cassie's, you know, vengeance in this moment is less about him, you know, going to jail forever and more about everyone knowing that he's a bad person. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting to me to get stuck on a moment like this because I think that there's such a long tradition in movies of police being administrators of justice being just understood as being a convention. In fact, it was required of films for a long time that people who commit crimes and do terrible things have to be brought to justice. That was just that's just a device that we accept without thinking about it. And now we're thinking about it. <laughs> but I guess almost as, as myself, as a habitual movie watcher, it takes a letter like this in a way to kind of like shake me out of my just assumptions about what movies just tend to do. I mean, this has just struck me as like a way to end the movie, a movie way to end the movie and all of these other you know, I didn't think about it at all in the context of the world in which we actually live. So, of course, I'm grateful to, to for the opportunity to do that. But uh, that was my reaction. I never really thought about it uh, when I actually saw the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the 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 writer is is correct in that the last year, especially, has raised um, has gotten people thinking about cops as devices, cops as uh, you know the instruments of authority, cops as 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 um heroes. You know, <laughs> as heroes, as as figures of of justice in ways that we were not thinking about them before. I mean, I I was thinking about how recently about how Brooklyn Nine Nine is basically I think they scrapped like half the season they'd written because they felt like they could not just drop a, a show about funny police people, policemen and policewomen into this environment and expect things to be the same. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's probably not something that was uh, necessarily being considered when the film was written or, or it's just a tidy ending. It's a very movie ending, as Scott suggested. For sure. Uh, well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773 773- Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of the Next Picture Show. 
In our next episode, we'll look at the uncertainties and possibilities of Rootless America and Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and also have access to extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, come on back to be 22. I'm an easy